Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Everyone loves a good party. Everyone loves to be with their friends, act silly, and cut loose. It doesn't matter how old you are. We all need a bit of a cathartic release every once in a while. So when Jean Myers was turning 45 years old, she decided to have a birthday slumber party for her and her closest friends. And Tamala Horsford was eagerly anticipating the fun evening. Tamala got into her car on November 3, 2014 and set off toward Jean's home, excited and ready for the evening. It was already dark out as Tamala drove to the birthday party in Cumming, Georgia. Her headlights lit the road, a beacon guiding her way to her football mom's slumber party. She had five sons and one stepdaughter, and I can only imagine the lack of opportunity she had to feel relieved of her burden, to feel young and careless if only for a couple hours. And the anticipation she must have felt as she drove herself to the party must have been intoxicating. The birthday party was an all-girls slumber party, much like they would have had back in high school. A girls' night to relax, drink, and talk about boys. And it was an all-girls party, meaning no men, except for Jean's boyfriend and a couple of his friends who lurked in the basement trying their best to stay out of the way of the chaotic and frenetic energy of the women enjoying themselves upstairs. Jean would later tell police the plan for the evening was to watch a college football game, the Louisiana State Tigers, versus the Alabama Crimson Tide. They also planned to have drinks and appetizers and to ensure the authenticity of the pajama party. They were all required to bring and wear their pajamas. Tamla's that evening was a white onesie with Dalmatians on it. Tamla arrived at Jean's home around 8 to 8.30 p.m. and found the home to be already filling with guests, none of which she knew. Tamla and Jean were friends through their children who played sports together, but that's all. They didn't exactly run in the same circles. Jean and all of her friends were rather wealthy and white. Tamla, on the other hand, was middle class and black, but by everyone's account of the evening, Tamla fit in well with the group, meshing with ease. The guests of the party had started arriving at 7pm, so when Tamla walked through the door, she was walking into a complete home of strangers, but they were quick to set her up with a bowl of gumbo, which had been prepared specially for the party, as well as snacks and a drink, and the women began to have a good time. And the noise of laughter and talking quickly began rising in a joyous frenzy as everyone became more and more comfortable and feeling the release of inhibitions as they drank more and more. The night went by allegedly as any other night would have. There was gossip. There was drinking games. There was laughing and drinking and according to the attendees of the party, Tamala would occasionally sneak off onto the balcony on the second floor to smoke a cigarette and a little marijuana before coming back inside and rejoining the party. And Tamala was seen laughing a lot and playing cards against humanity on a cell phone video shot by one of the women at the party. The evening went on and on, 
until the natural need to sleep began to overcome the natural want to have fun. And some of the women began heading home in either taxis or being picked up by their husbands. But some of the women were sleeping over. So while some were being picked up and the house was emptying, others went to sleep in the various beds in the home, including Tamla. Unfortunately, Tamla wouldn't live to see mourning. Jean's aunt Madeline both lived in Jean's home as well as attended Jean's 45th birthday party the night before, but had gone to bed early. So when she woke up the next morning, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to grab a cup of coffee and start her day, the last thing she expected to see through the basement window was a woman lying face down in the grass, wearing a white onesie with Dalmatians printed on it. The same onesie she'd seen one of the women wearing the previous night. That woman being Tamla. Madeline thought the woman on the grass had fallen asleep drunker than a skunk outside after getting sick from drinking too much, and went to tell Jean that she should probably go outside to wake her friend up. But when Jean went into the backyard, she couldn't wake Tamla up. And with her boyfriend Jose at her side, they saw she wasn't breathing either. So at 8.59am, Jean and Jose called police. We had people over last night when we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking. And we just went out, outside and she's laying face down in the backyard. Well, she was the only smoker. I mean, I'm, I'm on the back deck right now. And, you know, cigarettes lighter. I had to finger out here. Now, this is where things get a little wild and zany creeps. Perhaps by now you think she was drunk and fell off at the balcony. End of story. But from here on out, things become increasingly less clear as to what happened. What I've told you is as close to the official narrative as I can possibly get. But now you'll need to pay attention. There are a lot of different perspectives on what happened that morning. And I suppose like many times in life when two people believe themselves to be telling the truth. Or when two people lie. The truth of the matter usually lies in between those two points. When police showed up shortly after the 911 call and began investigating the scene, they were quick to pronounce her dead. The police then cancelled the ambulance and found nothing suspicious about the scene. In the police reports that morning, they wrote that she presumably fell from the balcony above, but all the same labeled the death of Tamla as an open and active case. But if it was open and active, Perhaps they should have done their due diligence and actually investigated the scene and questioned attendees properly. Police asked Jean and her boyfriend to provide statements for the case file, which they did. While sitting together in their home on the morning of November 4th, the same morning they found Tamla, with no supervision, at the same table, sitting side by side. Not exactly the most professional way to prevent collusion. You wouldn't allow children to sit together and take a test, and I think in most instances it's policy or at least commonplace procedure to take independent statements, so investigators are able to remove any outside influence or control. These are either two heartbroken individuals who had just found their friend dead in their own backyard after a fun and lighthearted evening, not that you could tell from the 911 call. Or they were possibly murderers, or accessories to murder. And they were writing statements side by side, unattended by police. 
On top of this, not a single one of the ten individuals who had spent the night at Jean's home were questioned. And when they did give statements, it was from the comfort of their own homes or at their pleasure. So essentially, investigators asked everyone if they'd seen or heard anything or had knowledge of what had happened to Tamla. And everyone shook their heads. So police gave a nod, pat each other on the back and packed up for the day. Even now, having written this, I'm not convinced there was a crime. Sure, it seems odd and it's tragic, but we might be looking for things that aren't actually there. This is a true crime podcast, usually, and myself writing it and you creeps listening might just be looking for clues where there are none, but things in the Tamla Horsford case kept getting more and more suspicious. Allegedly, as I can't fact check the headcount at the party, Every one of the 10 people who stayed the night were influential white members of their community with either connections to law enforcement or local political persons. This in and of itself isn't an indictment of guilt or suspicion. But perhaps when Jean tried to bribe, I, I mean gift every single police officer who attended the scene that morning at her home, thousands of dollars in gift cards, perhaps she forgot her place in the scenario due to her social affluence in the community. But wait, things get more confusing. The group that morning told police the last time anyone saw Tamla alive was 1.40 a.m., which is when everyone who was staying the night began to file off to their respective beds for the evening. The house security system, which showed any time someone opened and closed a door, showed that the last person to leave for the evening, a woman named Bridget, left at 1.47 a.m. And Bridget said at that time, Tamla was downstairs and alive joyfully and drunkenly enjoying one last bowl of gumbo before bed. And then another of the party goers left at 4.10 a.m. to head to work after a short sleep. This person didn't see Tamla alive or dead. But the security system also showed that the balcony door opened at 1.49 a.m. and closed at 1.50 a.m. And that had supposedly been Tamla going for a bedtime cigarette, which is what Jean and her boyfriend Jose had claimed to have seen. But then the door opened again at 1.57 a.m. and never closed, remaining open till the next morning. So by all accounts, and by the claim of Jean and Jose, Tamla went out onto the balcony having finished her bowl of gumbo for a cigarette. She opened the door and took one quick drag of her cigarette before quickly closing the door and then going back out onto the balcony seven minutes later and tragically falling to her death a short 14 feet below. Or perhaps she had gone out onto the balcony to smoke a cigarette, and forgetting her later inside went back in to snatch one and then entering the balcony again forgot to close the door behind her, and then fell to her death a short 14 feet below. Or perhaps Tamala went out onto the balcony at 1.49am and closed the door behind her before lighting her cigarette at 1.50am. Perhaps she stood out there, feeling the refreshing November evening air of Georgia reinvigorate her in her drunken state, and while outside relishing her cigarette, as people usually do, someone else came out onto the balcony at 1.57, without closing the door behind them, and that's when whatever transpired led to the death of Tamla. There is any number of possibilities, and I'm not trying to prove I'm Sherlock Holmes seeing all possibilities available. I just wanted to take a moment and illustrate to you creeps that no matter how smart those cops felt they were, or how thorough they thought they were being, to compromise the investigation early by quickly coming to perhaps a biased conclusion on site 
that she'd fallen, then given two possible suspects the opportunity to collude and write their stories together like they had done with Jose and Jean. There is no possible way that they should have come to the snap decisions they did about the death of Tamla. But did a crime actually occur? This is all circumstantial evidence. There isn't anything damning. There is no murder weapon. There is no discernible motive. There is no witness. All we really have are a few moments where people started acting suspiciously. But wait, there's still more, and it gets more confusing. Not only did Jean have a pretty thorough security system that alerted her phone every time a door was opened or closed, she had security cameras all over her home. Cameras which Jean paid a premium to maintain and have serviced regularly to assure her upper class home was well protected. There should have been security camera footage. There were cameras that showed the balcony door, the entire width and breadth of the balcony itself, as well as the lawn that lay below the balcony where Tamla's body was found. But sadly and coincidentally, all of those cameras were out of batteries. That's it, just simply out of batteries, there was no footage. To add to the suspicious oversight of Jean and her boyfriend in regards to the cameras being simply, quote, out of batteries, Jose himself started to coincidentally change his story as time went on. Initially, Jose told investigators that the last time he saw Tamla, she was in the kitchen eating a bowl of gumbo and grappling with the decision whether to stay or go home. But later on in another statement, Jose told police that the last time he saw her was while she was saying goodnight passing him in the hallway, on the way to go to sleep in Jean's son's bed. And this wasn't the only discrepancy in the already scarce and vague statements given to police. Jean's aunt told police that everyone was awake and already cleaning the home when she discovered what she thought was a sleeping woman, but what turned out to be Tamla's body outside. But Jean and Jose claimed that despite there being video evidence that Jean's aunt was at the party, and the statement from Jean's aunt herself that she not only spent the night, but lived in the home, they claimed that Jean's aunt had come home that morning and had woken everyone up in the home after discovering Tamla's body outside. Those are two drastically different statements that, like many things in this case, contradict one another and should have been an absolute red flag to investigators. And this is starting to become a weird true crime tragic mystery infomercial, my creepy friends, because just wait, there's more. Jose, Jean's boyfriend, worked as a probation officer and was later fired for using his position to access confidential files in the case of Tamla's death while it was still an open and active investigation. After the firing of Jose made its way into a tiny news segment, online pressure began to mount on the backs of the police in the case. But instead of spurring the police forward and pressuring them to find a conclusion in the case, a case which had sat open for months now and without seeking tips or information as police tend to do when eyes are on a case, instead they doubled down and closed the case of Tamla Horsford. And the autopsy results weren't even released to the family until four months after the autopsy had been performed. The results of this autopsy showed that Tamla had significant blunt force trauma injuries to her head, her neck, and her torso and the coroner concluded that these injuries were consistent with someone who had fallen from the height of 14 feet onto grass. But the conclusion to the autopsy wasn't given to police 
like it normally is, and as they normally do to protect the integrity of a case and the chain of possession in evidence. The sheriff in charge at the time approached the coroner stating the case was closed, and then asked if the coroner was comfortable signing off on the cause of death being accidental. Just to point out the obvious, this is a sheriff closing a case as accidental, without having received an autopsy report and instead informing the coroner. Now that oddity aside, the autopsy didn't just show blunt force trauma that would be consistent with a fall, but also reported that Tamala had lacerations on her face, her wrists, her fingers, her feet, as well as lacerations on the left ventricle of her heart, which police and the coroner claimed were also consistent with an accidental 14-foot fall onto soft grass. Creeps, if I don't sound convinced, it's because I'm not. I'm also not convinced there was a crime, but I'm not not convinced there wasn't a crime either, if you get what I'm saying. At the time of Tamla's death, she did have a blood alcohol level of 0.238, which is three times over the legal driving limit, and the toxicology report did find trace amounts of THC, as well as Xanax. Now, Tamla didn't have a prescription of Xanax, nor did she suffer from anxiety. But Jean, however, did suffer from anxiety and publicly shared that she was an avid fan of her little helper named Xanax. This autopsy was ordered by the state, and the coroner was also state-appointed, but Tamla's family was also allowed to perform their own autopsy and did just that. The lacerations found on Tamla that were concluded to be consistent with a fall by the state-appointed coroner Instead, to this independently acquired coroner, were found to be consistent with a struggle and not the result of falling a short distance onto soft grass. The independent autopsy also showed that Tamla's wrists were broken, which, as far as I can tell, this glaring detail was left out of the first autopsy. But more interestingly, her broken wrists were post mortem injuries. Once again, is there a crime here? I'm not sure. Was this a hate crime motivated by race? I'm not sure. Does this story have any place being told to you true crime creeps? I'm not sure. But this case is so odd, so peculiar that I think it's worth telling. Coming Georgia as late as 1987 was a haven for white supremacists and has had a long history of white supremacy. In 1912, Forsyth County, the county in which Cumming, Georgia exists, pushed out every single black resident, which at the time was 1,098 African-American residents, which made up 10% of Forsyth County's population at the time. And as recently as 1987, black demonstrators marching through the still all-white Forsyth County, protesting racism 75 years after the forced exodus of 1912, while well, protesters were attacked by white nationalists, throwing rocks and waving Confederate flags. Oprah Winfrey traveled to Forsyth County after seeing these shocking and horrifying images and asked the question, What are you afraid that black people are going to do? A white man stood up and told Oprah, I'm afraid of them coming to Forsyth County. Now maybe there wasn't a crime. Or maybe there was. But creeps. I don't think police were motivated to do their job to the same extent they would for the entirety of their white population. This was a black woman at an otherwise all-white party. Had it been a white woman 
at an otherwise all-black birthday party. Would police and media in Georgia have brushed it off as quickly? At the end of the day, it's up to you creeps to decide if this is a true crime story or if it's merely a perplexing situation I presented you with. But personally, I'm having get-out flashbacks. And at the end of all of this, what I want to know is if Tamla blacked out from alcohol poisoning and Xanax and then died from falling over the balcony onto the ground. And the impact of that fall on the soft grass below is what killed her. Then what or who broke her wrist after the fall that supposedly killed her? So creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.